Noise Nation. Greetings, Device Nation. You're home for the only medical device podcast that returns its listeners to their pre-arthritic alignment 100% of the time. And that was absolutely a spoiler alert. You're going to get to hear today from the developer and champion of the kinematically aligned total knee replacement. And yes, you know who that is. His name is Dr. Stephen Howell. My name, on the other hand, is Kevin Brown. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. I hope you're having a great day. I know I am. Before we get into this amazing conversation with Dr. Howell, let's continue what we've been talking about. And you loyal listeners know it's the special agent series inspired by Dr. Greg Vecchi from the Behavioral Science Unit with the FBI. Right now, we're talking about the OODA loop, Observe, Orient, Decide, Act, And we've talked about the two O's, and last week, as a quick reminder, we concluded that familiarity is oftentimes the enemy of observe and orient, which is gathering information, right? Well, today we're going to talk about the D, the decision aspect of this loop. Now, the key thing that jumped out at me on this whole thing was the fact that there even was a decision, because I know many times in my life, it's observe, orient, act, And that's not good. We need a Twix moment in there to open up a candy bar and think about it, right? A scrub tech friend of mine shared a story with me of a rep who probably wishes he had had a Twix moment. My friend was down in Central Sterile and saw this particular rep in front of a tray putting it back together. And he thought, well, that's awful nice of him. That's not even his company's tray and he's doing this. This is employee of the month material here. Well, as he watched him a little closer, he realized something kind of weird was going on. He wasn't really putting the tray back together. He was just shuffling everything around, putting 20 millimeter screws in the 15 hole, 25 millimeter screws in the 50 millimeter hole, on and on and on. So when my friend confronted him, it became kind of clear what he was doing and his evil mastermind way of looking at things. The surgeon would be so frustrated by continually being handed the wrong screw that he would take it out on the rep and be driven into this particular rep's open and loving arms. Sounds like a great plan to no one ever. Now his name is forever tarnished and will always be associated with this dastardly deed. And I have to believe that if somebody had sat down with this young man before he did that and said, let's analyze this, let's look at how many months you're going to get kicked out of the hospital for doing this, and let's look at what this is going to do to the most valuable commodity in your bag, that is your name. Do you really want to do this? And I honestly believe in my heart of hearts he would have had second thoughts about it. But no, he went from observe, orient, to act. So the key takeaway there, we're going to open up just a little bit more in detail in just a minute, but that there is a decision to make. After you've observed, after you've oriented, there is a decision that you need to be thoughtful and intentional about and not just blow on through to act and then deal with the consequences of whatever that action was. So I've been thinking about this. What's a good way to look at some of these decisions? This certainly isn't all-inclusive, but can we throw some criteria on it to at least think about it, right? And the thing that came to me was SMART criteria, and I know a lot of you have done quarterly target reports or having PTSD right now. 
I am not talking about specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, time-bound. No, no, no. I'm talking about a different SMART criteria that I think that we can apply to our decision-making nestled in there between orientation and act. So let's go through them real quick. S, are your decisions subject to anybody else other than yourself? Now, obviously, there's things that happen. People ask you a question. They need an answer. There's no time for a committee, right? But we're talking about these strategic things in and out of the OR. Is anybody involved in your decision-making at all? M, M as in Mary. You know, I'm always amazed and impressed by these people on these phone calls that have that whole military vocabulary set up. F is in Foxtrot, uh, V is in Victor, you know, all that stuff. I always do it completely wrong, ended up doing stupid stuff like R is in Rigatoni, and they're like, what? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know these things. M as in Mary. We're going to talk about moral. Oh my gosh, there he goes again. Moral. Just stop and ask yourself sometimes, is what I'm getting ready to do, does it stand the smell test? I have a scrub tech that I know that was helping out in purchasing, and a sales rep billed 27 frag screws on a four-hole plate. I promise you, they were not in and outs. He got busted for it, and he got relieved of his duties at the hospital a little bit as well. It was dishonest. He was stealing. A as in affirm is what you're getting ready to do when you're making a decision to say something or do something. Is it affirming other people or is it tearing them down? i never forget a friend of mine was in a revision case with a couple other reps and the revision involved his product, which was a very successful implant on the market, but the competitive rep in the room just couldn't let it go. And right before my friend was walking out of the room, he goes out of his way to tell the surgeon and anybody else in the room that would listen that people were revising his product all over the world because it was a piece of you-know-what. He had no idea that right around the corner from that kind of stupid remark was a real problem that was going to start developing with his own product. So I'm a firm believer that we live in glass houses here on every single level. So we don't speak ill of anybody because that's a posture of humility. Once you get into arrogant land, then it's fair game on everybody, right? Their products stink. They stink. They're terrible. Did you hear what they were doing about this or that? It's just not a good look uh, for any of us when we go a negative and make that decision to let our competitive nature get the best of common sense. R as in relevant is it relevant to what's going on given the people that are in this room? I can't tell you how many times I've seen device reps do this, and I've done it as well. We get myopia, we get tunnel vision, and the only person that we think we're talking to in the room is that person that we're conversing with, totally oblivious to the three or four people standing around that may not appreciate what we're talking about at all. So is it relevant? Lastly, T, timely. You know, the beauty of a job like medical device is that it is the long game. If you don't get it this week, you can get it next week. If you don't get it next week, you can get it next month. I worked with a sales manager once who was the master of this. 
I had no clue about reading the room until I worked with him. I was highly caffeinated and ready to act in any given situation, sometimes to my own harm. So there was something to be said, and I watched him do this over and over again. Look at body language. Look at facial expressions. Is this the right time to talk to this particular person? The scrub sink never Don't go there. I'm a firm believer that that is not the place to make a sales presentation, but forget the scrub sink for a minute. What about at the office? Is this the right time to share this? Maybe you should ask a few questions just to dip your toe in the water, because again, you can always come back. But once you cross that threshold and you've done the deed, you can't really reel it in at that point, can you? No, you're just annoying. I love the saying in orthopedics, it's always easier to take more bone than it is to put it back. Once you've taken that 20 millimeter hunk of tibia, well, that can be quite a step backward and pretty hard to recover from. Well, getting a chance to sit down with Dr. Stephen Howe was a big step forward for me. And I know it's going to be a big step forward for you because whether you agree with this concept or not, it's interesting. I love the nerdy aspects of this job, and this is one of them. It did not register with me early in my career. Kept looking at it, kept looking at it. Now I totally get it. And it's got some interesting angles to it. No pun intended. So on the heels of that absolutely dreadful pun, let's give a great big Device Nation welcome to Dr. Stephen Howell. Well, thank you very much for having me. Dr. Howell, I really appreciate you joining us here on Device Nation. Your impact on our space has been significant. I look forward to asking you about your patents, calipered kinematic alignment, your career in the Air Force. But first, let's start with your early stint as a data processor at Merck. What would put you on the road to your current career as an orthopedic surgeon? Well, just to be uh, clear, I was a little, I wasn't smart enough to get into medical school the first year I applied. <laughs> so, uh, so it's sort of a humble beginning, but, uh, yeah, I was, I was lucky enough to get a job, uh, you know, working on Timolol, uh, ophthalmic solution, which still is being sold for glaucoma. Oh, wow. So I got to work with the FDA and I got to work with clinical trials. So it gave me a little insight how research is done. And during that year, I also worked uh, in the emergency room a little bit and got some practical experience. So when I applied the second time, uh, then I got in at, uh, at Northwestern medical school. Why orthopedics? Well, I think, you know, when you're in, when you're in medical school, you know, everybody sort of looks at things differently, but, but my own take was I found things that I pretty much liked in almost every field, but then there were a few things in each field that I maybe didn't like as much. And as I moved through it, uh, I found orthopedics really suited me. And also because, uh, at the end of my first year, I signed up with the air force to pay my last three years. And I was looking forward to uh, getting my specialty training done before I went in the Air Force, and they had a real need for orthopedics. Uh, So I was either between ophthalmology or orthopedics. And so they gave me a deferment to do my residency, and uh, and that's that. I know you did a stint in pediatrics. What would lead you onward to sports medicine and eventually joint replacement? Back in those days, you have to remember, I did my residency from 81 to 86. At the time, it was Thomas Jefferson University. Now it's the Rothman Institute. In fact, that was Dick Rothman's first uh, chief resident oh, wow. when he came from Pensy Hospital over to Jefferson in January of 1986. Um, and so, you know, in those days, everyone was pretty much a generalist and we were still doing pins and plaster. And, you know, it was way back in those days, but total knees were being done uh, and ACLs being done, but not a lot. 
And so what happens, I end up in the Air Force, and what do I see? All these sports injuries. I see all these active duty uh, uh, fellas and ladies that are playing intramural sports uh, after work, and uh, maybe they get hurt on the job, they fall off the back of the truck or off the airplane and tear an ACL. So I, I really had to do something to fix these people up. And in those days, the bone, tendon, bone uh, autograph had a bit of morbidity, and I saw some patients that I thought – would have been better off maybe not even having surgery uh, after having a BTB. So I began the exploration of the soft tissue graft uh, back in 1986. I believe for a while there, ACL reconstruction was the name of your game. You were the president of the International ACL Study Group. Uh, what precipitated that pivot to total knees? You know, I think as a lesson, if anybody's out there listening in some phase of their practice, you know, you don't have to sit in the same subspecialty with the same clinical interest your whole career. I mean, here you can figure I finished residency 86. It's 2021. So uh, what's the math on that? Is it 35 years? It right. seems to be. So I started off with interest in shoulders, stabilization procedures, arthroscopically in 80, uh, 86 to 93 or 4. And then at the time, I started doing ACLs, and I got interested in the ligaments. I got interested in doing research in the area. And we made some important observations about roof and PCL impingement and tunnel placement. But after about 15 years of that, I said, it's time to do something different. So the professor, Maury Hull, and I in the lab thought, well, let's switch over to total knee because I'm really a knee surgeon. And so in 2006, uh, that's the time when things gelled. I mean, we had a lot of capabilities we didn't have five years before. It was the perfect storm. We had MRI of decent quality, 1.5 Tesla. We had the ability to image the knee. We had uh, open source software that allowed us to segment the knee and be able to build models. And then we had 3D printing to make guides to do 3D uh, guides for total knee replacement. So then that changed and we branched off to that in 2006. Tell me about your practice these days. I mean, what are you doing the most of? What do you enjoy doing? Well, I think when you get a little further along in your practice, You like simplicity, and and it's nice now because I mean, for the last ten years, I've averaged between four and five hundred and fifty total primary totals in these a year, and I don't really need to do any more than that. And so that's probably ninety percent of my practice, uh, or eighty five percent. And then I still do ACLs and an occasional knee scope, but uh, but that's my practice is is primary. Uh, caliper kinematically aligned told me arthroplasty. You retired as a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. Thank you for your service. It was a pleasure for me to serve. I believe you were deployed during the first Persian Gulf War. Uh, what pulled you into military service? Well, I was a little short on cash, you know, in uh, in medical school. And after the first year, I saved enough working for Merck Sharp and Dome, uh, and working in the, uh, in the pharmaceutical industry between uh, last year of college and first year of med school. I could pay for my first year of medical school. But after that, I thought, you know, in my my, my my dad served and my uncle served, and uh, I actually had gotten in West Point as a high school student, but elected not to go because I wanted to be a physician, and, and they'd only take the top 10% of the class in, in 1972 to 76 because we had the Vietnam War going on. Right. And, and, you know, and top 10% would be the group that would go to do medical school. And I thought, you know, I was a decent student, but I, was, uh, I, I wasn't sure that I would have that high of a rating. And uh, so I thought, well, let me do something different. I like to swim and play water polo. So I went to Penn State and was able to uh, play sports there and then uh, and then eventually get into medical school. So the military was a way to pay for my 
from my college and uh, or my medical school. So I owed him three, but then I stayed another 14 and a half in with reserve. I got a chance to hear Norman Schwarzkopf speak at a, a meeting one time, and what an amazing person he was. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, if you read his book, he actually spent a lot of time in Iraq, of all things. It was either Iraq or Iran during World War II because his father was, was the chief of the uh, uh, police force in the state of New Jersey, and they sent him over there to help with the police force way back in those days. So he had a history, even in high school, of being acquainted with the Middle East. Yeah. I first heard your name in connection with kinematic alignment with Otis Med. Uh, There was some work with Zimmer and now calipered kinematic alignment with Medacta. Going to give the floor to you, sir. How would you explain calipered kinematic alignment to my mom? Well, you know, we have this, this is a common question. Someone will come in the office and say, well, what do you do different? than other surgeons. And I said, well, I said, for 20 years, I put the knee in uh, the same way that maybe another surgeon would, and that's something called mechanical alignment. And I said, not to get technical, but what you do is you take somebody, whether they're bow-legged, straight-legged, knock need, and you drop a plumb bob from the center of their hip to their center of the ankle, you slide the knee underneath, and you cut the femur and tibia perpendicular to that line. And I said, you know, that's an average alignment, and I said, you know, it works a fair amount of time, and it works real good in a subset of patients because you don't change the joint lines too much in a, in, a, in a group of patients. But there's another group where you change the angle of the joint lines quite a bit. And those, I believe, are the ones that are the 20 or 25% of people that are not as happy with their knee replacement. So what do we do? Well, then I said, why don't you take a look at the door that you came through? I said, the door is a bit like a knee. I said, the door has a frame around it, and then if... I were to say to you, I'm going to go down to Home Depot, buy another door the same size and shape and put it up. I bet you can't tell that I changed that door out. But imagine that when I put the door on, I put it a little closer to the floor or a little closer to one of the sides of the frame or I tilt it a little bit on its hinge. It's going to bind and be tight and there's going to be some gaps and there's air going to leak through. So when I do a total knee replacement, what I do is the frame of the door frame is the same as the frame of the ligaments in your knee. You've got ligaments on the inside and the outside. We call them the collateral ligaments. You've got two retinacular ligaments that guide the patella, and you also have a posterior cruciate ligament. And I said, we like to retain all of your ligaments and swap out the surface of your knee, resurface it, if you will, just like I change out a door. And as long as I can sneak in that knee and do that, then your knee, other than the soreness for the first few weeks, should not be limited in terms of how it moves, and we should be able to restore the stability, and your recovery should be quick. Now, when you do the other technique, mechanical alignment, when you change your joint lines, you start cutting perfectly healthy ligaments. Sometimes it's a stretch of the MCL or LCL or PCL. Why are we cutting perfectly healthy ligaments? So that's why the knee replacement, when we do caliper kinematic alignment, in comparison to our experience with a mechanical alignment, is the recovery is faster. There's a higher likelihood you're going to have a patient say their knee feels more normal. They're going to have a higher activity level with it, and uh, and they're going to be more pleased with the overall experience. So let's go back in history for a minute. Let's go back to the origins of mechanical alignment, and I would like to give you an opportunity to compare and contrast it with the anatomic alignment philosophy that we saw coming out of Halmedica uh, during that same time frame. Well, you know, I, I sort of remember. I remember those days very well uh, because. 
that was a really heady time in yeah. joint arthroplasty in the 70s because we had these competing schools. You know, we had the anatomic school from Hungerford at Hopkins and then the special surgery, uh, John Insull School of, of Mechanical Alignment with Perpendicular Cuts. And, uh, and I, remember, I remember being in the OR with Dick Rothman probably maybe the first month or two of my chiefship in my last six months of residency with him, and we were doing a total knee. And he was doing mechanical alignment with an insult bursting uh, posterior stabilized knee. And it was a virus knee. And we make the distal femoral cut. And we take more bone off the medial condyle than we do the lateral condyle. And yet the medial condyle is worn. And I said, Dr. Rothman, I said, I just want to ask. I said, you know, here, you took more bone off the worn side and less off the unworn side. I said, shouldn't we be taking the amount of bone off at the end of the bone that matches what we're going to put back after we factor in how much cartilage loss there is so that we resurface the knee? Well, he says, this is how we do it. And so I've always remembered that. Um, And to me, Hungerford had the concept right. And we have to give him great credit for his work. But I think he was compromised by the fact that the plastic in the day and the liner or insert thickness that Halmedica chose in the day was only seven millimeters thick and the quality wasn't so good. And so they ended up with some polyware issues and concerns of too much virus. And so I think he was a little, to lack of a better term, the word sabotaged <laughs> by the limitations right. of the implant capability back in those days. Right. But, uh, but he was on the right track. And ours is, a, you know, we just expanded on his, 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 his technique with the idea that you're going to resurface the knee. I'm hearing this phrase kinematic alignment with the word calipered in front of it. Uh, what's the distinction? One of the things I learned in ACL and being part of the ACL study group is we convene every year, uh, every other year, excuse me, and uh, and then we'd bring all the these experts around the world in, and we'd sit there and we'd argue the tunnel should be here, the tunnel should be there, that's too anterior, that's too vertical, the femoral tunnels here and there. We had no way to communicate with one another as to whether or not we executed the surgery in a quantifiable way, the same way. It it was a gestalt. It was uh, artwork. And so when you think about if the principle is really to restore the patient's pre-arthritic alignment, then you can plan it with an X-ray. You can plan it with a CT scan. You can plan it with 3D models. You can use robots, nav, manual instruments. You can use PSI. But how do you know that you resurface the knee? You know it when you measure the material that you remove and when you measure the thickness of the distal femoral resections, posterior femoral resections with a caliper, factor in the thickness of the saw blade. The term for that is a kerf, K-E-R-F, generally a millimeter, and when there's cartilage missing, factored into the two millimeters, when that assessment is made and you've removed the same amount you're putting back with metal within a half millimeter, a millimeter, you've achieved calipered kinematic alignment. So whether you're an enthusiast with uh, manual instruments, PSI, NAV, robot, if you're going to do kinematic alignment, I believe it's exceedingly important to verify whether you achieved your target. And you can only do that when you measure the pieces you cut off. Just use good carpentry skills. That's what a carpenter will do. 
So tell me, what kind of instruments have you come up with that help achieve that goal? Well, I mean, they're really simple, to be honest with you. Uh, and we've been through several iterations with several several companies. But um, most surgeons are familiar with the posterior referencing guide, where you have two feet, and the guide sits on the posterior femoral condyle. And if you're an MA person, you're going to externally rotate the femoral component from the posterior condyle line, which is you know, kinematically incorrect. And we'll discuss why that is when we talk about the axes, but they're a reliable guide. So why don't we do the same thing on the distal cut? Why don't we reference the distal femur? So we just have guides with a build-up paddle or an offset of two millimeters on the worn side. And we put a positioning right up the femur like you would with manual uh, with mechanical alignment, but we allow, we have an oval opening in the guide. You put it over the rod, you can translate it, you know, lateral, and sits flush to the distal femur. And if the medial side is cartilage missing, we ask for the guide that says worn medial, unworn lateral. We put it in and we have very nice instruments with Medacta. There's compression screws to lock the guide in. It's rock solid. And when we make the cut, we very rarely over-resect. If we make an error, we will under-resect. And by how much? About a millimeter. So the beauty is when you cut bone or you cut wood or you cut anything, you can only cut it three ways. You can cut it just right, you can cut it too much, or you can cut it too little. And so when you make a little mistake here, you're going to say, okay, I know my distal lateral cut should have been eight millimeters because the curve's a millimeter is nine and the implant's nine, but I only cut seven. In fact, it happened to me today. So I have an ability to just shave another millimeter off that distal femur, and now I have restored the patient's distal the lateral femoral ankle. I have set the proximal distal varus valgus position of that femoral component, and I've confirmed it by measuring the two distal pieces. And that's the whole ball of wax. And then we'll do the same thing posterior. So femur first, restore the distal and posterior varus valgus, i.e., proximal distal AP position, and that's what those four measurements give you. So four of the six degree of freedom placement positions are established by those measurements. That's why they are so powerful for determining the outcome of your knee. And then you cut the tibia to gap balance and extension so there's no VV laxity, and that thereby restores the patient's prearthritic knee and limb alignment. How is the Q angle affected by kinematic alignment versus mechanical alignment? Well, that's a good question because there's a lot of misunderstanding out there that, oh, yes, geez, you're going to have all kinds of patellofemoral tracking problems with kinematic alignment. The Q angle is restored to the patient's prearthritic Q-angle when you do kinematic alignment. But when you look at mechanical alignment, about 70% of the knees that we do, according to the Bellman's work and others, the limb is naturally in varus. So when you take someone who's naturally in varus, which is 70% of them, and you then mechanically align them, you take their normal Q angle, which is what their patella was happy with, and you increase their Q angle, which can increase the risk of a tracking issue. So when you do calipered kinematic alignment, you restore the patient's Q angle, which promotes proper patellofemoral tracking. Now, the argument that a mechanical alignment surgeon will say, well, doctor, uh, all of our implants are designed to be used with mechanical alignment in which the femur can be externally rotated uh, three degrees and sometimes more if you're a gap balance enthusiast. Well, you might think that that would lead to an issue, but 
there are several studies out there, two cadaver studies I'm aware of, where they looked at KA versus MA in a cadaver model, and they measured the uh, patella tracking, and then they measured the loading of the medial lateral facets, and which alignment gave the best uh, uh, numbers, it was KA. So KA gives you better load sharing in the lateral facets and gives you more normal tracking than does MA. Why? Because we don't change the Q angle. If you look at modeling studies where you can take a variety of implant designs made by all the popular vendors and then align them to a 3D cartilage model of the whole femur and align it in a group with MA and a group with KA and then say, hmm, which trochlear morphology position most closely matches that of the native knee. And it turns out kinematic alignment more closely restores the geometry, sulcus angle, medial lateral facet height, radial groove location, angle of the radial groove. All of those are more closely restored to the patient when you do kinematic alignment than mechanical alignment. That's why we've seen a very low issue of patellofemoral tracking issues with KA. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't improve the design of the femoral component for kinematic alignment, but it means that when you're doing it with today's version of femoral components, the surgeon should not expect a higher risk of complications doing caliper KA with the uh, implant systems available today. I read a great article that you did talking about the three axis, uh, the three kinematic axis in the knee, the the transverse axis, femoral, the tibia, and the patella. And then I believe there was a longitudinal axis in the tibia. Uh, Do you think that KA works good in your hands because it's kind of respecting what was going on pre-operation in those axes? I mean, I I don't think you could have stated that any, any better. I mean, that's where there's this, when you think about, what makes what what determines how the knee moves? And as you mentioned, there is a transverse axis in the femur that is centered, and you can either do a surface fit, a cylinder fit, or a sphere fit. Uh, and that's what uh, Eckhoff and Joel Bach did in 2005. They found a cylindrical axis. They fit a cylinder right across the femur. The center of the best fit cylinder is the axis in the femur by which the tibia flexes and extends. And then uh, Coughlin, a few years later, found that there was another axis that is uh, parallel to the first one and about 8 to 10 millimeters proximal and anterior, and that's the axis about which the patella moves. And then way back uh, before this, Hollister in, in 1993 found also there was this transverse axis in the femur by which the tibia moves, but they found the longitudinal axis. Now, Pinskarova and Freeman in 2005 then identified the location of the longitudinal axis, and the longitudinal axis is perpendicular to the tibial joint surface or the distal or posterior femoral joint surface. But when the joint's compressed, it sits in the center of the medial compartment just slightly posterior to the midline. Now, if the knee is allowed to distract, so if you're in the operating room, for example, and you have your trial components in or you have a normal knee and you have an arthrotomy, if you lift the femur up and let the leg hang without gravity or with gravity and you rotate the tibia, it's going to move around the center of the knee. But when you compress it, it pivots in the medial compartment. And that's why I think the, 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 the trend, and it's going to gain momentum, is the, the idea that you need a There's a general term called a medial pivot uh, knee, but I believe it needs to be a medial ball and socket 
to replicate the kinematics of the knee with a flat lateral insert. And that combination optimizes internal rotation during flexion, which you need to do so that the cue angle changes properly and is reduced as you flex the knee to optimize your patellofemoral tracking, taking tension off the retinacular ligaments and allowing them to relax the right way. And that reduces the risk of that knee pain, the person that comes in. How are you, Mary? Uh, Doc, you know, my knee's tight. And Oh, Mary, will you please bend your good knee, Mary? Okay, bend your total knee I did. Mary, they're bending the same. Yeah, but Doc, this one's tight and it hurts in the front. And I believe that happens because the tibia is not internally rotating at 80, 90, 110, 120 degrees of flexion like it should because there is a posterior lip on the lateral insert that blocks internal rotation like a chalk block behind an airplane. I've heard over the years a phrase with some surgeons, kinematic alignment within limits. They're like Harrison Ford standing over that crevasse, and they think that maybe stepping out on there, there's not going to be a, a step illuminating in front of them if they get yeah, yeah, beyond yeah. 10 degrees uh, deformity either direction. What would you say to them to put their mind at ease or just your experience in those they would consider to be outliers? That is very poignant. So you go back to 2006 where I was when we came up with the concept of of kinematic alignment. And back then, we just used an MRI of the knee. We didn't even know where the hip or the ankle was because why? You mentioned earlier about the three axes. The three axes of the knee, their orientation is determined by the surface of the joint line. They are not determined by a line between the femoral head and the center of the knee and a line between the center of the knee and the center of the tibia. So when we, when we started with, with this MRI concept, we just restored the joint lines. So when I began, I was a little nervous too. I mean, I didn't know what the final outcome was going to be. So I did what I think anybody today should consider is to start easy, do mild virus deformities, get a little comfort, and then you're going to do a little more severe one, and then you're going to start to do valgus. But go at the pace that you're comfortable with. But here we are now, uh, beginning in January of 2006, and here we are January of 2021, 15 years. During that time frame, I have done calipered kinematic alignment on every knee. I have not limited the correction on any knee, even those with multiple level deformity. So if someone had an old HTO, someone had a femoral shaft fracture, tibia fracture, I did, I did kinematic alignment calipered and did not regard anything about where the femoral head or the ankle is. And in that group, we have had very, very high success Varus tibial loosening or tibial wear is uh, is uh, is really a concern with the MA people. Uh, with calipered kinematic alignment, that's the solution to the problem. So why does mechanical alignment have varus problem, varus overload? Because they put the femoral component in varus relative to the native joint line in 84% of the knees they operate on. So the varus overload is not caused by the tibia cut. It's caused by the femoral cut. So if you put the femoral component, let's say you change the distal joint line, let's say four degrees more varus than it was in the patient, then you better cut the tibia in four degrees more valgus than it was in the patient. If you only cut it two degrees more valgus, you end up with a varus limb alignment. And there's a lot of studies. We have one with Robert Barrick where he compared his MA knees done with either PSI, one group of 40 knees or 50 knees, and another group that had it done with manual instruments and mechanical alignment to a group of my patients with calipered kinematic alignment. Which group had the highest percentage and the greatest amount of varus outliers? Mechanical alignment, not KA. 
Doc said to me, Doc, you, 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 cut your, you cut your tibia and varus. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, let's take a moment here and let's just switch the vernacular here. Let's talk about alignment from a kinematic alignment point of view. What I say to you is I don't cut anybody in varus. What do you mean? Because I restore the patient's pre-arthritic joint line. I don't cut any tibias in varus, and I don't cut any femurs in varus. I said, in contrast, when you do mechanical alignment, 84% of the time you're going to cut a femur in varus, and then 70% of the time you're going to cut the tibia in some degree of valgus. And when your femoral and tibial cuts don't match, you end up with overload, ligament tightening, you got to do releases. So all the problems that you see as a mechanical alignment surgeon, instability, stiffness, unexplained pain, that then you need to go to higher constraint because when you release something, you get this sort of chase your tail and the knee gets out of hand and you can't stabilize it. Those issues tend to be extremely mitigated with caliper kinematic alignment. I'm having to dust off that phrase with an unpaid marketing position here from the instrument make car interference screw. The whole concept of being biologically quiet, I see that as really applying to what you're what you're working to accomplish with these patients. Yeah, I, I think that the, the things that happen, and for me, you know, it's been, what, 15 years since I've done MA. But I will tell you the things that tend to disappear are the unexplained effusions. You know, you have these people come in, and they're like uh, six months out, and, uh, Doc, uh, my knee's not quite right. Well, what's happening? Uh, well, I get on the stationary bike, and if I ride the bike for 20 minutes, I'm good. But if I go to the spin class, I'm on 50 minutes, then my knee swells, and then I have trouble walking the next day. And, you know, in the old days, I'd say, well, you should be thankful you're on the bike for 20 minutes. I mean, our patients don't want to hear that. Our patients want to be on the bike as long as they want to be on the bike. So when you get those effusions, that's instability. And it's caused by the implants not being coincident to the joint surface. And it's also caused by the use of what I call low-constraint implants. So all the brands that are out there that have a relatively shallow medial and lateral concavity that doesn't match the femur, so it's not a ball and socket um, uh, uh, medial compartment, but both the medial and lateral compartments have low constraint, then that knee, because you've cut the ACL, and it's even worse if you cut the PCL, has this AP movement during repeated activities. And these patients have what I like to refer to as exercise intolerance. They're good if they're 70 years old and they're doing 75-year-old things, going to the grocery store, playing bingo, uh, maybe bocce. They're good. But when they try to do more, hike a mile, go up and down inclines, uh, hike two miles, go skiing, then that micro-motion that shouldn't be there leads to soft tissue overload of the collateral ligaments, and those patients get effusions, get unexplained pain, and they just have to back down in their activities. And right now, we're really struggling with this age group of 50 or 60 because this age group now, our implant um, plastics and the designs are solid enough, I believe, to last a patient's lifetime if you put it in a 55, 60, and you put it in with caliper kinematic alignment. You know, we look at our failure rate now after 15 years, uh, negligible. And when we get it, it's due to known causes. We have tracking problems with the femur when we flex the femoral component more than five degrees from the anatomic axis. We have it when we add too much slope uh, beyond the prearthritic slope. So our causes of problems are known. And when we know the cause, we can 
mitigate it by developing verification checks to reduce the risk we're going to have it happen in the operating room. So our failures are controllable by understanding the technique where mechanical alignment makes the same mistakes year in, year out, and that's why they haven't moved the needle, reducing the risk of virus uh, failure and uh, instability. When did you have your aha moment on this whole philosophy? The thing that really excited me was, you know, back when we sat down to build uh, the PSI guides, which at the time we didn't call kinematic alignment, but we knew that our goal was to restore these axes. I, I did the first lady, and she's now deceased, but her name was Mrs. Finocchio. So I can use her name because she's not with us any longer, but she was a swell lady. And, uh, and I go in to see Mrs. Finocchio after we used it the next day, and she's sitting there in the chair with the knee 90, 95 degrees flex with minimal discomfort. And I thought, this is not what I'm seeing with what I used to do with MA, where I would have a flexion contraction, take another two, three millimeters off the distal femur, and then I cut the tibia perpendicular to the mechanical axis and have to release the MCL and blah, 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 blah. So that was uh, that was the beginning. And then once you started doing them and you were able to compare them to your MA experience, and you just knew it. And then you'd hear it from what? The patient would come in and say, oh, you know, you did my sister's knee a year ago and my recovery is so much faster. Or uh, I went to uh, bingo uh, and I'm three weeks out and there's a lady there that had their knee done by somebody else two months ago and they're still on their walker. Or the therapist can't believe how fast my knee recovered. And you'd hear this. And that gave you courage to go forward and continue with the technique. What was it like in those early days blowing a KA trumpet in an MA world? Well, it, it, it's not a whole lot easier right now in the United States. I'll tell you, uh, the New Zealand, the Australians, the, uh, the, the Asians, Jap- Japan, China, uh, uh, Europeans, the Germans, uh, uh, the, the Italians, the English, uh, the Israelis, they all get it. They all know. I mean, the, the, the only place where it has been slow to come around has been in the U.S. And, uh, and so it's being driven not by me any longer. It's being driven by a lot of randomized trials being done around the world. And every year you see a couple of them pop up showing that the outcomes are better, that the risk of reoperation is no higher, that the revision rate for implant failure is no higher. And so to me, there, there's not a downside to it. There's only upsides. What would you say to a surgeon uh, who wants to dip his or her toe in the water to just check this philosophy out and give it a test drive? Here's the one thing that's different now in terms of test drive. Find a company that has uh, implants and instruments that are FDA approved. So that then protects you, right? Gotcha. When I was doing this before, they weren't FDA approved. Or if you're a European user or an international user, a CE marked. So you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm with Medacta, because we have implants mated to the instrumentation that are FDA approved for calipered kinematic alignment. So there is, you're not using anything off-brand. So that's a good safety measure. The other thing is, is if you're going to do it, do it. Don't go halfway. So I don't think there's, if, if you're uncomfortable, you're looking at a virus and oh, I'm afraid to do a kinematic alignment, don't do it. Don't do it at least now. But if you decide to do it, then you follow the rules, you do the measurements, you do the verification checks, and you do it to the letter. Because when you deviate from that, like you don't cut the tibia at the right angle, you're going to end up with VV instability. And then you'll have a patient that's unhappy, and you'll blame it on KA, 
But it's not due to that. It's due to the fact that you restricted the correction. So I, I think if a surgeon wants to restrict who they do and they're not, they're not comfortable, by all means, follow your conscience. But if you're going to get into it, start and commit not to one, but commit to doing 10. Start off with relatively easy virus knees, which is the easiest thing to do. And if you're nervous, stop doing them for a few weeks until a few of them start coming back and follow up. And there you go. You can make your own decision. But my, my, my plea is, is don't limit your correction back to the pre-arthritic alignment because you're going to end up with ligament problems and laxity problems that are uncorrectable. And you're going to get away with it in a small subset, but then others are going to rear their head. And, uh, and you're going to say, geez, I shouldn't have done that. Is there a website you can point the audience to, to, to learn more about it? So I think, yeah, that's a good thing. Educational material. So there's a, there's a variety of things. I mean, I have my website. It's, it's Dr. Steve Howell, D-R-S-T-E-V-E-H-O-W-E-L-L. And there's certainly a patient portal, but um, we have uh, one for surgeons. So the papers that we've published in our lab at UC Davis, uh, the bi- uh, basic science data, clinical data, all those papers are up there in PDF form so they can be downloaded if you don't have access to the journal. We have videos up there. Uh, I think the other source, of course, is implant companies. Uh, so you can you can go to implant companies that uh, provide you with the KA instrumentation and implants. So uh, Medacta, as you mentioned, I'm affiliated with them. Uh, the third thing is, is go to ViewMedi. Uh, and ViewMedi, www.vumedi.com. Uh, that's a great source. We have uh, videos from our own work, and other authors are up there talking about the pros and cons. So I think that's a, a wonderful place to get learning. If you go to uh, ViewMedi, you will see my, my group of videos called The Ten Commandments of Calipered Kinematic Alignment. And uh, Dr. Tom Mead and I, who's in uh, Allentown and a, a good friend of mine from residency days and high volume knee surgeon, we just published a book uh, on that 10 commandments in Amazon. So it's inexpensive. I think it's like 17 bucks for the black and white or 15 bucks and maybe 30 for the color, but it's a primer for the orthopedic surgeon and the 10 commandments answer a lot of the, maybe let's put it this way, address and we hope answer a lot of the questions you've posed today that are concerning to the to the surgeon who's looking at the technique. And it's pictorial, a lot of pictures, and it's a simple read. And you can read a chapter at a time, seven pages to a chapter, big font, so a guy like my age can read it without my reading glasses. And uh, and you and you can just say, "Geez, uh, thou shalt not, you know, uh, limit the correction, you know, or thou thou shalt not worry about tibial component failure because." It's caused by mechanical alignment and alleviated by, or excuse me, it's caused by mechanical alignment and alleviated by calipered kinematic alignment. And, and they're a little bit tongue in cheek, but they're illustrative and, and will provide you with the, with the references to support those positions. 34 patents. Wow. I'm in the presence of greatness, doctor. No, no, a lot of people have patents and a lot of times they aren't really all that good. Uh, and you know, the patents, it's sort of a funny world anyway, you know, you get them and then you know, companies will try to work around them or, you know, they'll go overseas and build what you got, you know. So, but it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's nice to, to, to contribute and uh, it's fun to get one. Um, but, you know, the proof in the pudding is, is why are we all in this business? And that is to get people uh, the results they're looking for. And for us, I'll tell you the one thing here we are in the middle of COVID in California, uh, you know, back in the summer, 
we got hit with uh, about 40 of our employees got infected in the hospital. So we shut down all activities other than COVID treatment for about four weeks, last week or two of June, first two weeks of July. And my hospital said, you can get back operating, uh, Dr. Howell, if you do same-day discharge at the hospital. I said, okay. So, you know, I know this is going on. There's a lot of people contributed to this. But I called a couple of friends of mine. I called Tom Mead downtown, Andrew Wickline up in New York. Great experience with this stuff. I got their cocktail. I got their preoperative meds and blah, blah, blah. We tweaked it a little bit. We were able to do it for the $22 injection instead of using expensive Expiril. And we haven't let anybody stay in the hospital now for uh, eight months. Is it eight months? Is it July? No, that's a five, maybe six months. All, all comers, with the exception of two or three that we knew had to be admitted due to kidney dialysis and blah, blah, blah. So when you do calibered kinematic alignment, because you're restoring the joint surface, because you're not cutting healthy ligaments, because the joint stays in pretty much intact, when you put the local anesthetic in, it does a great job numbing that knee. And you can get these people to go home the same day. We don't use physical therapy after the discharge. We show them what exercise to do. Uh, we don't use visiting nurse. And so there's a real cost containment here. And the patients get better quickly. And I'll tell you that on a Friday, when the follow-ups come back, uh, that we'll have 10 from the six weeks before, there might be three or four that'd be the second knee we did on them. And there'll be another three or four that'll have had bilateral OA. And of the four, two will sign up to have the other knee done at the six-week follow-up visit. They turn around and have the knees done so quickly, the other side. So that's a real throughput thing for you. You have very few follow-up office visits. So you drop that volume down instead of seeing in the three months and six months and a year, and you get people coming and complaining. The volume of those patients is diminished markedly. And you're signing that patient up for the second knee on the follow-up visit of the first knee. And, and so your, your volume goes up, but the length of your workday goes down. You know, we were talking about being a, a KA surgeon in an MA world, and uh, I talked with Dr. Wicklon recently about his uh, experience with therapy-free and being a therapy-free surgeon in a therapy world. What's your experience been with that, letting your patients do the therapy on their own? And We started doing that in all comers uh, over four years ago. And so what we found is our, our therapists, they're all very well-meaning. They all want the best for the patient. But what happens is when you start to do calipered kinematic alignment, you're going to find that these people will sit post-op with 90 degrees, and they'll come in with 110, 20, sometimes 30 at six weeks. With minimal effusion, they're already walking a mile or two. And what we found is the therapist went to their house or they went to the therapist's place, uh, they'd see that the knee's moving 90 or 100 degrees by a week, and they'd start putting them on strengthening exercises. And they'd work them real hard for an hour, and they'd go home sore, and their knee would blow up, and then they couldn't do anything for two days. So when I see a patient in the office, I tell them the following, and then I tell them the same thing prior to surgery. I said, listen, here's what we'd like you to do. I said, uh, you ever sprained your ankle before? Oh, yeah, doc, I've done that. I said, to get better on its own? Yeah. I said, uh, when you sprained it, did you, did you go out and walk a mile the day you sprained it? No, no, I went and propped it up. Uh -huh. <laughs> did you want to go to a therapist and have them push the ankle up and down for an hour after you sprained it? No, I don't want to do that either. I said, well, I want you to handle this knee just like you sprained your ankle. Every hour that you're awake at home, you get up. Walk for a minute or two initially. Sit down for a minute or two, minute or two practice straight and bending the knee. Then back on the bed, back on the sofa, chest down low, leg up on the pillows, keep the swelling down. And as your knee gets better with flexion, the swelling goes down, you're up more and more and more. 
And I said, you can get off the walker when you feel that you're carrying around. It's not working. I said, most of our patients are off the walker within a week or two. They're driving the car within three or four weeks. And uh, you can progress at your own pace. And I think you'll find that's a little bit easier and less painful than if you go to the therapist and they work you too hard for for an hour and then say, uh, let me see in two days, take your pain pills before you come in. So we get them off the pain pills quicker because they're not being hurt. And look at it in COVID. Do we want to have these patients go into the therapist during COVID? It's inconvenient. It's hard for these elderly people to get there. So in terms of costs to the health system, in terms of your bundle payments, in terms of if you're running out of your surgery center, you can reduce the costs uh, of the therapist and the visiting nurse uh, by doing this. And the other thing, we had visiting nurses. We used to have the Coumadin issue. But now we're giving half dose. If someone's got atrial fib and they're on Zeralto or Eliquis, then what we do is we have them stop two days before. And then on the day of surgery, we give them half dose for 14 days. And then we let them switch back to full dose. And so now we don't have to worry about having a visiting nurse come in and check on the wound and, uh, and, uh, and check their INR and adjust their, their Coumadin dose. So, so that has helped us get rid of the cost of the visiting nurse. Dr. Howell, you've been in this business a while and you've seen a lot of changes over the years. If you were sitting down with some surgeons uh, coming out of their programs now, uh, what would be a couple things that, that you would throw their way in terms of advice? That's sort of our fertile ground for kinematic alignment. I think the young surgeon in their training, they go to the office with the surgeon, do an MA, and they see that these knees, some of them aren't so good and they scratch their head. Why? And they're not indwelled with this dogma of MA quite as much. They haven't lived through the difficulties of the early years of arthroplasty like some of our senior guys and gals have. So they're a little bit more open-minded and they're a little less watchful because they haven't had a, a sort of a, a, some issues where the experience wasn't as good. And they take a look at this concept and say, you know, this, this makes perfect sense. What other joint do we operate on in the body where we don't restore the normal kinematics? Name a joint. Hip replacement, what do we do? Restore the center, femoral head, location with the implant. We restore the offset. We restore the version. We restore the limb length. I mean, it's shoulder replacement, same thing. What about when you do a tibial plateau fracture? I mean, would you ever, if you had a tibial plateau fracture, intraarticular, not restore the joint surface? Well, when you are cutting too much off of one side and too little off the other, you're essentially not restoring the joint surface. So even in our... uh, our, our fractured care, we won't accept an offset of two millimeters or more, and generally we won't accept any at all. Why do we intentionally put an implant surface in so that it deviates from the joint line, maybe on one side two millimeters and not on the other? Maybe it's two millimeters proud medial and flush lateral in extension. Maybe in flexion on the medial side, it's flush, but then it's two millimeters recessed laterally. I mean, that is a combination of placement issues distally and posteriorly that you can never, ever balance that knee by adjusting the tibia cut and by doing a ligament release. The only way to fix that knee is go back and put the femur back where it belongs. I get it now, and I don't know why I didn't get it then, but when I first heard about it, it was confusing. It didn't make a lot of sense. Do you think some of the challenges early on was just messaging, training? Uh, What do you think? Well, I I think I'm guilty of contributing to that a little bit because, you know, to educate something, to get something down in clear terms. I mean, Steve Jobs said there's nothing magical about making some machine. It's it's doing something and making it simple, simple to use and simple to understand. And I may have been guilty of making it too theoretical, but, 
you know, you hit it early when you said there's three axes in the knee. And then when you understand their geometric relationship to the joint surfaces, they're either parallel or perpendicular to it. And when you understand when the axes of the implants don't co-align with the axis of the knee, then they're tilted. And that will create a kinematic conflict with the collaterals, retinacular, and PCL at some point in the motion arc being tighter or looser than they should be. And when that happens, the patient feels that knee as being constrained or loose. And when you deviate from the joint lines a millimeter, you know, it's something the knee with time will adjust to. But when you're off by two, that prolongs the rehab, and that's a group of patients that may never get the result that they want to have. I'll never forget a surgeon. This was 25 years ago. He told me that whenever there's an argument between the body and the implant, the body always wins. Yes, and, and that is true. You, it's the same with ACL surgery. That's why, for me, you know, I've always been a ligament respecter, so to speak. And you know, when you're doing, when you're a classically trained mechanical alignment surgeon, and you're classically trained at the valgus knee, you know, you need to do all these releases, and you better have constrained implants in there because you're going to end up having to use them, and blah blah blah. Uh, I mean, those they're skilled at adding hardware to to, to sort of compensate for ligament issues. But I spent the first 20 years of my career trying to reconstruct an ACL and try to preserve all the ligaments that I have. Why would I go to total knee and start cutting them out? Hmm. And so then you, you, you learn, if you don't want to cut a ligament, don't put the implant in too proud from the surface. Because if the tibial component or the femoral component or both are beyond the native joint surfaces, you got tightness. And then you got to start cutting good stuff. So when you start to do the resurfacing principle and, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, compensate for the cartilage wear on the femur and gap balance the tibia cut and extension and restore the native slope when you retain the PCL, which is my preference, um, you end up having a harmonious knee and less painful and an easy recovery. And then that helps you get the patient out of the hospital the same day. That helps you reduce the narcotic use. That helps you reduce the need for, or eliminate even the need for physical therapy and visiting nurse. And then you become a hero, not only to your surgery center, but to your hospital system. Uh, and, uh, and that helps uh, build you credibility among your peers. The harmonious knee. I see some branding coming down the pipe. <laughs> there you go. That's a good one. I yeah. like it. Dr. Hal, I really respect surgeons who challenge the conventional wisdom uh, with outside-the-box innovative thinking, and you are that surgeon. Uh, I really appreciate your contributions to our new replacement world. Just, uh, just great work. Great work. Well, it's sort of my little swan song. You know, here I'm going to turn 67 in another two months, and it, it, orthopedics has been just a plain uh, – I mean, I don't want to quit. And, and you see this among surgeons. I, you can't get them to quit. Because we really like what we do. And we like it because there's no better compliment than when a patient says, Doc, I had a lady in, I'll just tell you this. She was a PA for one of our neighboring orthopedists who does mainly MA. And she came, she had two prior ACL uh, reconstructions, multiple operating surgery knees, 55 years old, athletically active. And we did one a year ago. She was back skiing in three, four months. And then I did the other one, I think September, October this year, October. So she sends me a video, New Year's weekend, downhill skiing. And she comes in. She had a big varus thrust and everything else, all done with primary implants and with a medial ball and socket, flat lateral insert. 
and she can do squats. She walked eight miles up and down a hill. And she said to me on Tuesday, she said, you gave me my life back and had tears in her eyes. I mean, how good is that? But the corollary is this, is when you have a patient that comes in and says, doc, I don't like my knee. Something's wrong with it. And I'm not happy with you. And we get those too. And the more you can read, and I still get some of those, but you get less of those when you do KA and you have less of these patients that are dissatisfied coming to your office, which makes your office hours fun to go to. I had a surgeon one time invite me back into the room to meet a patient that had one of uh, my company's implants in her. She just told me her story, and, and that just totally changed my perspective of going beyond the box that was going to be opened in the room and see the patient behind it all. That's the shot that brings you back in your job, and it's the shot that brings us back in ours is when a patient walks out of there just happy and you change their lives. There, there, probably nothing can touch that. No, and, I, and I'll tell you this. In terms of the reps uh, and the distributors, you know, the role that you play uh, in making sure that everything is there and providing some guidance. Always it's not your, your, your job, and maybe you shouldn't, but you remember that, and I've always been caught, even with revisions, I don't do a lot of revisions. But when I have my rep there who's going to other surgeons that do revisions, and he makes a suggestion to me about something, I sit up and I listen. And oftentimes I do what they say. Because you have a different perspective. You're seeing a lot of different surgeons as a rep doing the same sort of operation and getting into different difficulties and how they get out. And oftentimes you bring that back to the OR to help the surgeon you're with that day. And my brother, Jim Howell, who's been with Stryker, Howe Medica initially, and then Stryker for 35 years in the Philadelphia area. I mean, he's one of the guys. I have to credit him. When I first did the Otis knee, uh, I sent him a picture of the knee moving, and I sent him a picture of the guides. And he hopped on the plane and came out to see it in February. He couldn't believe it. And then he went back and took that technique to the Philadelphia area and got a lot of interest in the Philadelphia area with the Otis Knee between 2006 and 2009. So if it wasn't for him helping me, because he knew more about knee replacement in some degrees, about implant design and what was going on in the real world than I did. And, uh, And so, you know, you learn from everybody when you do this. And I'll tell you who you learn the most from are your dissatisfied patients. I learned a long time ago in the ACL world. If a patient has the problem, I caused it until proven otherwise. And if you do that and don't say, oh, that patient didn't do the rehab, or that patient did this, or that patient is an alcoholic, or that patient takes drugs. If you, if you do that, you miss the chance to learn, to learn how to improve your surgical technique. Because the only thing you have control of in terms of that patient, you don't control how hard they exercise. You don't control their mental status. You don't control how much they get up during the day and whether they 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 put a good effort out. The only control is what you do in the OR. And when you fine tune that better and better and better, then the vagaries of the patient's ability to do things that all becomes less important because they recover naturally on their own. That's some sage advice there, doctor. Unless proven otherwise, it's on me. I mean, I can see that. It's on me. That's good. And I'm going to take that for me into the device world as well. That's good advice. Uh, We really miss an opportunity to get better when whatever happens was somebody else did it 
or yeah. uh, somebody else's no, fault. Except it, but don't lose sleep over it. Here's another little little thing that I do. And this is why, you know, I mean, I got pretty good at ACL reconstructions, you know. Um, but at the time, my best year, I did 160. So that's a pretty good amount of ACL reconstruction, especially in the old days when there wasn't as many of them going around. But if I had a problem 5% of the time, uh, 160, I'd have maybe nine. Hmm? So maybe I'd have two in a month and not any one for two or three months, then I have another one. But if you have a problem 5% of the time and you're doing 500 primary total knees a year, you've got 25 of them. That means every other week somebody's coming in. So when I would see a problem and I didn't know what was causing it, I have all my images in a, in a folder. You can either use, uh, you can use whatever you want. But for me, and I have a Mac guy. I use Horos, which is free. And you can also use Osirix. And they're great uh, data storage for your image files. And you can set it up just like an iPhoto album uh, where you can have subfolders and you can put in, let's just say, knee stiffness or knee instability or patellofemoral instability or tibial component failure. And when you have a patient with that, you search, you find the name of that patient, all the files that belong to it, and drag it into that folder, and then let it accumulate for a year or two. Or for our case, when we looked at tibial component failure and patellofemoral instability, we had to wait seven, eight years to get 10, 12, 13 people to write up a study about it. But we accumulated them that way. And then every once in a while, you take a look and you see what's common, what isn't, and you sometimes can work through and have an illuminating moment that, aha, Stevie Howell was not restoring the prearthritic slope. <laughs> he went excessive in these patients that ended up with posterior tibial component subsidence or posterior rim wear of the insert because the flexion space was too loose. That's great stuff. I love a quote to uh, Robert Fulgham. The examined life is no picnic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll agree with that. It's also no picnic when others are examining your life as well. <laughs> Touche. On that note, Dr. Hal, it's just been an honor and a pleasure, sir. I, I appreciate you coming on the show to share your life with us. Thank you so much. It's, it's my pleasure. Thank you. What an amazing conversation with the one, the only Dr. Stephen Howell. I really love what he talked about of having that folder of images to go back and look at a patient that didn't go as well as he wanted. And I thought it tied in really nice as reps. Do we have that folder of looking back at actions and things that happened as a result of decisions that we made? And being able to look at it and go, okay, was there anything that we could have done? Uh, and just like what he said about the patient, so much of that is not in his control at all. However, we are in control of the decisions we make and the actions that flow from that. And the only way we're going to get any better at this thing is to be able to take a critical eye and do a retrospective study, so to speak, and look at some of these things that we've done and, and think, should I have told that joke in the OR? Uh, should I have waited to make that sales call till later when everybody didn't look so harried? Should I really have rearranged the screws in my competitor's small frag set? Probably not. A huge thank you for being part of the show and a huge thank you to Dr. Al for coming on and just sharing his life with us and hope you all have an awesome week. 